Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're trying to divine what the future commodity trading business might look like, its operating model, the technologies that underpin it, and the talent required. Joining us to discuss is David Ray. David was a former Chief Technology Officer for BP, as well as CIO for BP's global oil business, and has had various roles in technology, innovation, and digitization within BP across upstream, midstream, and downstream. David, thanks for joining us. Hi, Paul. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. So we, I guess our focus is on trying to divine what a commodity trading business or platform would look like in five, ten years with all these ongoing rapid changes around digitization, energy transition, the talent landscape. It's going to be a bit of a challenging discussion, but I guess starting off, can we look at what will the types of technology at a very base level be available to the trading platforms of the future? Yeah, I think we're at a really interesting point in time for one of our description. And there's two levels to that. There's one is the wider context we're living in, which is technology is available like never before at a price point that's never been available before. Data is being produced at a volume that's never been come across before and at a speed that hasn't been observed before in our time. And lastly, there's something going on about skills. So there's a happening in the wider context is people are building skills, looking to build skills, wanting to use those skills to use the technology, to use the data. So that's kind of point one for me is there's a wider context to this thought and this conversation. And then specifically, if you look at what's happened or what's happening around us in commodity trading, again, it's, it's, it's at a really interesting point in its story, in its chapters, as it were. Physical markets have always been complex. They've always been driven by lots of variables. Those variables essentially are lots of data for one of their description, but been very hard to create the insight of that. What you're starting to see in a technology lens or a technology landscape that's changing around us, if you start from almost the base up, then you start looking at things like cloud. So cloud is a really interesting evolution in the last few years or so. It's become much more mainstream, I'd say, in even the last two years, particularly public cloud. Cloud opportunity gives you price variability, it gives you scalability, and it gives you an opportunity to experiment, I believe. Because of the variability, because of the scalability, you can try things you wouldn't have tried before because they were too prohibitively expensive from an infrastructure cost or whatever else it might be. So that's the first thing. Just from a, you'd have to previously have all of that computing power in-house, and so you just didn't have the ability to run and stress test the same scale of of algorithm or whatever it might be. Is that what you're saying? Exactly right. So if you take an example of quantum models or even VAR testing, you look at uh, the things you would try and evaluate if you're looking at forward models to predict or forward models to define new opportunities, you would almost be applying your human bias to it kind of unconsciously or consciously because you're looking for those higher probability outcomes because the effect of running the model, the effect of defining the model, building the model is capital intensive. It is slow. It's all those things. If you took away the limitations of speed and cost, then you can open up, I guess, open up the lens and the breadth of what you might want to evaluate to test. So whether that's correlation analysis, whether that's different evaluation analyses of market movements, whether that's what you would do with the physical financial positions, you can you can run different models and therefore evaluate different things. I think that creates innovation. That creates a way to think differently about what the opportunities are, equally what the controls are and a different way potentially to make money. 
but I think that cloud thing is kind of is a first layer that's really interesting and has come into the the main and the norm pretty fast. Mm, kind of unlocking the sandbox, so to speak. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a nice way to describe it. It's unlocking the sandbox, the sandbox, and it's unlocking potential. It's also unlocking unlocking money because these were big capital or big operating cost choices you'd have to make around hosting and the cost that went with that. If you can drive variability in that cost, uh, you only pay for what you want today in this moment, which is an abstraction of the cloud model, then you can use the funds for other things, which potentially takes us into the next bit of the conversation, which is if that's your base level, then there's something around data. So if there's one thing which is about hosting and data, but the second thing is what do you get using it, right? What what there's no point in having it unless you create insight from it and understand it. So the concept of whether it's data models through to data lakes, through to data lake houses and data meshes and the language changes all the time. The fabrics seem to be the latest bit of language that seems to be used over the last three or four months in more prominence. They're all trying to get after the point of how do I access and understand the right data, the biggest volume of data I can at the best price point I can at the best speed I can. So cloud is the first level. The second level is then data, which I think is around can be linked to cloud, but might not be. But you're seeing things like Databricks, you're seeing other aspects of that that are really harnessing the ability to use the data to create insight from it. So that's the second kind of element to analytics. Yeah, so you actually, you've got, an, what I understand there is you've got this, not only do you have the cloud, which is provides the computing power, you've got, and we'll come on to data, you've got huge, vast increase in the amount of data available internally and from external sources but you've also got this significant or you know i don't know is it exponential but improvement in analytics around that as well is that correct yeah that's entirely correct i think that's the third bit so if cloud is one data is two the third bit for me is about analytics and visuals and so that is both how you interpret data how you make decisions faster how you understand consequence of decision but also how you derive insight so examples there that would be interesting. That visualization has become much easier to build, to do. So you don't have to be the technical developer you might have been of yesterday to be able to build complex visualizations and be able to interpret the visualizations the right way. Analytics would be another one. So the ability to run models on like no code and low code. So again, the emphasis there being you don't necessarily have to be a core engineer programmer to be able to build outcomes anymore you can use capability to do that you're thinking about how you can plug your commercial decision makers provide them the the dashboards the visualization so that they can start to interrogate this data in a i guess from a a relatively simple control deck without themselves she or he having to be a coder or understand necessarily the the analytics behind it yeah, you don't want people messing about with it. It's like um, the old cliche of you don't want people being innovative with your ledger. It's that kind of thing, <laughs> right? You want yeah. you want to enable people with skills and access to the right technology and data to be able to build the commercial outcomes better than they could before. And the commercial outcome might be a pre-trade decision. It might be a trade itself. It might be a piece of analytics. It might be a risk element. It could be a risk management element or compliance or control element. Point B, and you're kind of trying to augment the human in this way so that they can be better at what they're naturally skilled to do rather than having people playing in spaces that they don't need to do. But it does bring, it also brings a bit of security and compliance to it. So again, the data models 
can be managed in various different ways, either through controls and responsibilities and roles and those kind of things, or from a true a digital security lens that clearly gets applied up and down that picture I've just described, but primarily around data and infrastructure examples again. Because as a, as a company, you want people to be able to experiment and innovate in the right places, but your primary responsibility is for the security of the company, right? And the ongoing security in every definition of that word of the organization. Yeah. And also, I guess, making a defensible competitive advantage, which I think we will come on to later on around some of the challenges of this, because actually, if a third party starts offering a, a visualization machine and the data is all just available and out there in the ether, it could change dramatically the nature of trading. I just want to play playing kind of the game. Where are we now in terms of visualization and this, this, you know, are we providing fantastic or some companies providing fantastic screens and data management systems to their traders? And, and where will we be in five, 10 years? Are we going to have virtual reality headsets for traders and they're going to be navigating the Suez Canal kind of thing? And what's, where could this go? Yeah, we'll have all kinds of people in VR goggles trying to fix out how to move a vessel that's blocked something. Yeah. Rather than all those memes going around about the little digger and the massive, the massive yeah, I car. Had, I had to get one in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting, right? Because if you go back to late 90s, early 2000s, arguably, a lot of trading companies were thinking about things like visualization. So I remember early on having conversations with traders about trying to visualize P&L and mark-to-market as a landscape. So peaks and valleys and all that kind of stuff. But it was crude technology, it was very expensive technology, it was hard to maintain. People as individuals like you and I weren't used to engaging with technology in that way. That's all changed dramatically in the last 10, 20 years. I mean, all the anecdotes are there, right? When did you first have an iPhone? What's the processing compute of an iPhone now versus a high-performance computer in the 90s? All those things have changed. So our expectations and our abilities have changed as individuals. So if you take the slightly cliched kind of concept of applying our consumer experiences to the trade floor, I think that's an interesting way to think about how technology is evolving. Mm. So whether that is a small scale app that is cheap to run, but is very focused around what I do and makes my life easier, whether that is my Amazon app at home. So on the on a weekend evening, I can be on my laptop, on my on my couch ordering stuff in three clicks and that's all great. And then I come into the office on a Monday morning and I'm having experiences that are fundamentally different. They may be like decades old SAP screens that are focused around the technology, not focused around the individual. So that analytics and the visuals thing, I think you got to kind of meld that into something about what experiences we want to give people. I'm a big fan of thinking about designing experiences for people and personas. So what would example be a trader workbench that is focused around what a physical crew trader needs, what are the three or four things they need to be able to do their job better today and faster today. Which is interesting, right? Because that plays onto the working from home experience. Actually, if you're customizing the work experience to be mainly online, right? That's where the point of sort of differentiation happens. You don't, I don't really care how good the coffee is or the meeting rooms are. Like it's all about what environment you created for me online. That promotes both working from home but also builds significant competitive advantages the question i have though and i guess we'll come on to this a little bit later but then you've got to start thinking about where is the point of value right like who in that chain it, who's actually fundamentally always everyone then starting to create the value because historically it would have been very easy for you to say oh well this this trader in and of their own autochthonously came up with this trade idea and executed it 
and it fantastic it worked out it was very easy to say that they they were the alpha right they were the people that they they drove all that value but now if you're saying actually hey i've given my trader i've given them the data i've given them the analytics and i've given them basically a, a shortened series of options or choices they can make what does that mean for the trading skill set and i mean, i think we should I think we're going to cover that more yeah. in detail, but it kind of raises a really interesting point to come back to, I think. I think it does, because I think it, it gets to the heart of the future change, or the change that's happening, and then how does that play into a future kind of instance or future a depiction of commodity trading? It's not technology alone. It's not data alone. It's not how the prices of the market is going to change. It's also cultural. Mm. And I think, as you said, we'll come back to that probably, because it is a I believe there's a big bit of culture and ways of working and operating model, as well as those other things I described. So I think that's that's fascinating. So we're talking about like this context of cloud through data, through the analytics available, and then putting that into a package, which is almost bespoke to the individual role or the individual themselves that enables them to do their job, their role faster, more efficiently, and, and ideally more successfully. Is there anything more on that, or is that sort of a good snapshot of where we're probably are going to end up? I think that's a good snapshot. I'll just add one thing to what you said, which is, if you're not careful, it sounds like it's a narrowing. And mm. I think it's an opening. So traders will be able to access more, whether that's insight, whether that's potential financial flow, whether that's value chain kind of idea, i.e. they can see more of an end-to-end value chain. They'll be able to access more of that, but it'll be done in a way that's contextual to them. So it's not a narrowing in terms of, They'll be able to access these three things of the 10 things they could yesterday. It's almost the, there'll be three things of another 30 and 40 that they don't even know about today. Mm. Or actually we're getting rid of the 20 things that have been distracting you. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of the internal side. You and I were sort of struggling on where to put this, but I think like talking about data and technology and kind of you really were talking there building internal platforms that better enable decision-making and trading. What about... A big thing at the moment, a big question mark out there, but it's certainly a lot of people are attempting to do it, is distributed ledgers, technology, blockchain, DeFi, DApps. I guess the the idea here is that ultimately a couple of facets of distributed ledgers means that partial ownership, for example, should allow better liquidity and financing of the commodity world because you've got the underlying assets everyone can see exactly where everyone is it's all auditable in the second so you don't have these kind of trading on or you shouldn't have trading on sort of missing receipts or cargoes but also you've got this essentially what they would do is disintermediate the current exchanges so it should make the process more faster more transparent cheaper and actually start allowing people to design contracts with a multifaceted attributes that perhaps aren't available now where do you see, I mean, that's a huge question, but where will blockchain be in, in the commodity trader's life in five, 10 years? Yeah, it's a nice, easy question to answer clearly, Paul. And if <laughs> I had a really good answer to it, I would be probably doing other things with my spare time to be able to go after that. I do think it's a massive space of change. So kind of what we talked about, a lot of what we talked about was where we are today, right? That kind of evolution of how we got to this point and where we are today. I think when you lift your head up and look down the timeline, it gets much more interesting in terms of a range of different stuff. So, and I'm not talking about people talking about quantum and stuff. That's, that is way out too far. But what's very near and very here today is, as you said, uh, whether it's like distributed ledger, whether it's the concept behind the language of blockchain, whether it's DeFi, all these things, they will create, I think, a collapsing of that value chain again. 
they will kind of much more get consumer producer linkages. They will um, they will drive those relationships and transparency around those relationships and those transactions in a different way than was, that was ever done before. And I think there's two really interesting aspects to it. One you've already hit upon, which is efficiency, basically. So by the collapsing of that, you can increase the efficiency and the effectiveness, if we like, of a transaction. It's more trusted. It's more potentially cheaper. It's potentially faster. It's all those things. It, it's much more transparent to use that language again. But there's another bit to it, which I think is also interesting, which is about provenance and trust. So I think there's a piece to what could be interesting around these evolutions of online platforms, which are coming, by the way. There's elements of it here. There's more interesting ideas on the horizon, but they're coming. It's not a matter of kind of if, it's a matter of when and how fast and how big. But this idea about trust and provenance, I think, is also an interesting aspect of if you could go back to almost the original, the base hydrocarbon at its point of origin, understand it and be able to have understand the provenance of that and the lineage of that all the way through to it being used i think that's a really interesting idea and a really interesting opportunity we've never Mm. been able to do it before for obvious reasons but it feels like that's the kind of thing that's coming down the pipe and the translation of that into either it's a much much more trusted exchange which is interesting because then you get to things like what's the other things that go with that well KYC kind of like knowing your counterpart is it's a pain in the rear process right it's a kind of it's a thing that lots of companies have to do if you got to this model of more sophisticated online platforms online exchange that had an underlying protocol that was consistent and had everything you described then you could quickly get to the point of almost like a digital passport couldn't you? you could get to the compliance angles of that which means you declare it once, you prove it once, and you're up and running, and that's all fine. Which you can do transactionally right now through other other platforms, but you can't do it at scale. Yeah, I think the example I've used elsewhere in other conversations is people would pay a premium to know that their garden fence is made of wood with more sustainable attributes, or at least a certain segment of people would. At the moment, you've got this, you know, the mixing pot of commodities, the terminology of commodities means that they're all valued the same as soon as they go into the same tank. And I think the world is moving away from that. Provenance does matter. Cobalt from Missouri matters more than cobalt or should be priced more and people should be paying more for cobalt there than than with ones with more challenging provenances, for example. We do that with diamonds already, right? But this enables us to do it at scale. And I down to the individual barrel. So it it feels like it's coming. It feels like um, it's going to be a really challenging journey, both technologically and commercially, to get there. But I think I think that's I think that's a really interesting point, though, because I think it's coming, but it won't stay around for long. Because it'll move from being a premium thing to being an expectation and normal thing. Mm. So I think there's something interesting about right now. People will pay premium for that provenance that lineage that understanding as you said to be able to say the cup of tea in my hand or the tea i buy in the local grocery store what went into that and if you think about that question it's quite a long way back in its origin to be able to answer it right because it gets to energy use to be able to produce stuff it gets to all the societal aspects of who was involved in the production all those kind of things but a lot of companies right now i think will pay a premium for that at some point you'll start to see that become it's an expectation. And at that point, it becomes almost an exclusionary thing. It's not yeah, even a you're, premium you're locked out. thing. You're locked out if you don't do it. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because I'm just looking at, we're doing some work for this podcast on renewable diesel at the moment. And that's a classic case where the feedstock provenance or the feedstock type really matters. 
and should and could command vast differentials in pricing or even actually to your point locking out right if you're if you're chopping down virgin rainforest to plant palm oil production to make renewable diesel that's that's an absolute no or negative but if you're using used cooking oil then that should command a premium for all the sustainable qualities and i think that's where the scalability of dlt of we're seeing it in, in NFTs in the art world, but I think that's where it's it's coming. But I think that's a fascinating. I think there's almost a, a series alone to try and dig into that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and once you know the answer, let me know. Yeah, yeah, right. So I think we've got this idea of the the trading businesses of the future are going to have much more opportunity to to consume data powered by the cloud. That also means they can be smaller in scale. You know, come on to that. You've got really important how you're starting to consume and visualize that data for your trading traders. And that could be a real point of def- differentiation. What does that mean? You know, five, 10 years, does talent in the commodity trading world look vastly different? Is, is it very, you know, compared to now where people have got 20 years experience in the physical commodity, they may have come through operations or refining. What does it mean for talent and skills going forwards? Yeah, I think the question on talent skills is a really important one. Because if you believe the premise that what's needed, the future of commodity trading and the, has always been needed, but needed even more is technology and data, then manifest through that, obviously, is people and skills. And I think it works on a couple of levels. One is existing roles and what skills they need. And then there's something about new roles and new skills. But if you take existing, you take analysts around the world working on trading floors, lots of those analysts are still doing manual activities, whether it's wrangling data, kind of putting data together, managing data from various different spreadsheets and what have you. In the near future, what's happening now, but will continue to happen, you'll see those tasks get removed and the human can focus on what humans are better at, which is the actual thought process itself rather than the manual effort. So automation, other technologies around that will take those tasks away. But that means if an analyst today on some floors and some commodities and some desks and some products is spending half to three quarters of their time doing that, then it's quite a different role when you flip that around and go, okay, but you've got to be spending then up to 80% of your time truly analyzing markets, truly analyzing positions and trying to find new opportunities in either fundamentals or the existing trade positions. And so there's a change happening there that I think is going to be important. And you'll see that manifest through everything front to back, I think, um, Back office analysts who traditionally were old school accountants, you'll see that kind of morphing into analysts who need to be good hybrid technologists and financial analysts. There's almost a creativity aspect to it, right? If if the shift is from, I guess, that manual wrangling of data and the ability to sort of the accounting part of the brain, the shift is going to be around the creativity of different ways of asking questions of the data. And I guess scientists have always been creative, right? Coming up with a hypothesis, so to speak, is is going to you know that that's going to become increasingly important compared to your ability to, I guess, to understand the mechanics of the model, the stochastic model behind it, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's right. I think because especially if you look at if what I was describing there was kind of existing skills, existing roles, then you're going to start to see new skills and new roles needed, and there'll be new technologies and new data. I'm not really talking about that. It it is more what you describe, which is the aligning and bringing together different perspectives to different backgrounds, like different skill sets, to be able to see new opportunities in the data, to be able to see new opportunities in the markets. So I think you'll see more people looking for analogs, people looking for ideas from other industries and people and talent from those industries to bring into this environment to solve these problems. So 
if you're looking for somebody who's really good at analyzing data and being able to see patterns in data or being able to see even anomalies in data, what have you, you might go and look at the pharma business because the the recent past of the pharma in terms of R&D is much richer in that technology and use of data than probably the commodity traders have been. So I think that is a key, that's an example of where you're going to start to see people pulled in for their, because they're different, not because they're the same, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there's always going to be the background to this, which is commodity trading is always driven by real world events as well, though, right? You can't, not everything is going to be in the data. So some skill sets are going to very much be the same. You know, people who are, I guess, can sort of, uh, is that a fair statement? I mean, how does the, when a pipeline goes down or a conflict starts or a ship gets stuck, yeah, you, you still got all that piece. I think that's right. I think the question is the balance point. So if you look at when I started my career in trading, what, late 90s, 80 to 90% of the floor was based on intelligence of a different kind. It was intelligence of who you knew. It was intelligence of what your instinct in the market was. It was intelligence of what you could find out about the physical flows themselves. That still has a place because that gives you context for a decision. That gives you context for turning data into insight. In those days, it was rarer to see people who were truly fundamental-based traders and truly data led in that decision making as it were now i'd say it's inverted probably over that time period so it's still intelligence but it's of a different kind right it's kind of it's trying to take new data existing data different data turn that into intelligence you still need to know though whether that is i guess being corny in language whether that is intelligent or not there's no point in putting a great theoretical model together if you can't actually do what it's indicating. That seems pretty yeah. pointless, right? But, And I know of plenty of examples like that where people have thrown really smart people at problems that when they've come out of the dark room, they've come up with this answer that anybody who's spent five minutes in the business goes, well, that's just lunacy, right? You can't physically do that. So it's a nice theoretical idea, but practical application is important. So right now in, in the big picture, we're seeing this sort of general shift from the manual mechanical capability to do something to the leaning more on people's judgment, right? And I think that's going on across the world as a result of digitization as more tasks can be automated, more tasks can be better tackled by computers, handled by technology. You're looking for people with judgment and you're saying there that actually this is where starting to look outside of the commodities industry means that you're going to get different types of judgment that hopefully collaborating will give you better creativity in the group, better better ways of asking questions. Where, when you look five, ten years ahead, I mean, there's a few lots of things to unpack there. One is, will leadership of these commodity trading organizations be different? I mean, right now, they're for the most part, almost exclusively, with the exception of some likes of BP, all commodity traders themselves. What does it, you know, and, and what are those new skill sets as well that you see in five, ten years that we just couldn't even contemplate right now. Yeah, and I think there's, before I answer your question, I think there's another angle that's interesting because we've talked about skills and I think there's a slightly different angle which is, for one bit description, personality. There's So if you're having to adapt and flex much more because things around you are changing quicker. So in theory, if there's more technology, if there's better, faster data, if the markets start to move quicker because of those things, and yes, there's the physical aspects which will always have their own pace to it, then probably need to start thinking moving quicker around that so and therefore you need to flex to that to some degree so the individual who is much more open to i've made this mistake or i'm learning from this mistake or i'm learning from somebody else's mistake or i want to share what i've done and why i did it recognizing that it didn't work that mindset of experimentation where experimentation is a good thing i think is a different aspect of 
of like talent that I think you will need more of, will draw more out of. I see more now of grad traders, the traders coming on the floor who are much more of that mindset. They're much more of the, how can I learn and adapt and flex? Not, I have the answer, I'm right, da da da, all the rest of it that goes with that. And so I think that's an interesting aspect. Yeah, you move from a world of engineering where there's one right answer to where dealing with clouds of possibilities and and so forth, which is, uh, which is, I think, ambiguity becomes much more prevalent and the ability to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty and probabilities and judgments and so forth is um, becomes crucial. Yes, I think that's right. Which is typically an aspect of senior, you know, in my experience, as you become more senior in an organization, talent has to deal with greater levels of uncertainty, you know, that you, you never know where you got the answer right or wrong, right? And that's one of those transitions from early stage career to mid-stage, later stage. You're, we're going to be asking that of people much earlier in their careers, it sounds like. I think that's right. And we'll be, and if we get it right, we should be looking for that. Not, yeah, we should be, and maybe that is your point, it should be asking for that, seeking that. I guess I have an underlying kind of view and belief, which is that if you bring those different perspectives together and you bring them together in the right way, they'll probably come up with a better answer rather than the cliche thing of a like-minded group and like human bias thinking and echo chambers and all that kind of stuff. I think bringing those different perspectives in, bringing those more open mindsets around that, bringing the 20, 30 year experienced individual as well as the grad who's got different skills and different experiences bring them together in a way i think you can get to better answers and i think we'll see more of that through smaller multidisciplinary teams rather than a traditional here's a desk of traders then behind them is a desk of analysts and behind them is a desk of risk and behind them is a desk of back office i think you'll start to see stripes through that more which is a trader a risk analyst a fundamental a quant a strat whoever it is put together to solve a problem to make more money in a different way yeah and you've got to uh, we'll talk about that in, in operating models in in a couple of minutes but you've got to create the culture where that 30-year veteran will listen to the raw grad from probably a very different social background cultural background to them and one of the fascinating things on one of the leg ups the commodity sector has in general is that they do have access to global talent because yeah. they have offices around the world. It's that mindset change to not just draw from the same few universities, you know, University of Geneva, Oxford, whatever it might be, and actually take advantage of that sort of fabric of diversity that you have beneath, you know, around you, you know, but you've got to create the right culture to attract those types of people and to be able to retain them. Yeah, and I think it's been there in pockets before. So one of the best trading leaders, executives and traders probably – I've ever come across was somebody who did like classics at university. They weren't economics, they weren't financial, they weren't those things. But they came at the problems from a different perspective and they could find new insight through that and then they had everything else you need to have to be able to be a, a great trader. But the second element of that is think back to the earlier bit of the conversation. If you buy this premise that technology and data becomes more important and therefore those skills become more important, they're not unique to commodity trading. So it is going to be competitive. It is going to be competitive to get those data skills, those technology skills, because people may want to go to big tech companies or they may want to go to other organizations that have a stronger purpose to them. So there's, you need to be thoughtful, I think, about those aspects as well of how do you describe the purpose of what's being done? Because increasingly, and it's become a bit cliched, but I do think there's 
a change there, which is purpose is a criteria that people use now to be able to make their career choices, as well as hybrid ways of working. I, I don't have to spend my 12 hours a day on a trading floor every day. I can have flexibility around that. Those things were pretty unheard of. Go back two years, three years, never mind, never mind 10 years. Yeah, I, I do, you know, I th- and I think that's part of the, the same thing that applies with energy transition as well. All of this is going to require different skill sets from outside traditional pools and outside of the industry, but needs to be blended and melded with existing talent and existing people who, are, who really understand the physical commodity flows. Yeah. So just before we move on to kind of where we'll be all doing this, you know, are there any wild card types of um, skill sets that we'll see in the commodity trading house of the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always curious about. So, if go back to the earlier bit of the conversation about if if one of the big things is about how you visualize things and how you analyze things, and if you understand how people make decisions because of that, and how people do that quickly, then there are obvious places to go and find people who have skills in that. Gaming would be one. Online gambling, yes, it comes with kind of. A, associations you may not want when you're when you're trading commodities and managing risk but you get the idea there's kind of there's areas there's skills in people there who are deeply experienced in how humans make fast decisions and mm. how they visualize data and how they use those things well aerospace industry i assume that aerospace you're exactly. talking about visualizing people making fast decisions when you're designing the cockpit of a you know a generation seven or whatever at, yeah. fighter there's an analogy there, right? There absolutely is, yeah. And then extend that analogy one more level, which is if that's about the tools people are using, then the thought process is about how people are working together, I think is another interesting area to pick up. So the concept of bench is essentially, if you get it right, it's a high-performing team. So where are those other analogs of really strong, amazing, high-performing teams out there in the world that people could learn from? Sport is an obvious example, but there are wider ones. How do you bring some of those expertise of almost like behavioral analytics into something like a trading bench and a trading desk, which then goes back to my earlier point of having the right people who are open to that, the right people who have experience, they can find the nugget of insight in that. You're not just doing it for the sake of it. That's the really interesting opportunity, I think. Yeah. So just before, because I think almost the culmination of the conversation, I think is that question about how you build that some of the challenges to it. What about the physical workplace? COVID, I think, has accelerated our openness to change and the fact that there are plenty of organizations, ours included, that have thrived in a a remote, a a, um, hybrid working environment. What do you think, will the the trading house of the future have glitzy offices Mayfair, or is it as likely to be a distributed network over a series of continents? Yeah, and I think it'll be a mixture of both because I think there's... There'll be flexibility people want out of their life. There'll be flexibility we can provide from a technology and data perspective that comes with efficiency, but also comes with control, which is an important point, clearly. There'll be all those aspects that are coming if they're not already here today. So those will give people opportunities to do that, you know, as well as I do. Some of the beauty of what happens on a trading floor isn't a point-to-point transaction. It isn't an email from one person to another or whatever. It's something you overhear. It's something two people connect on, talk about whatever else it is. How do you create those opportunities? How do you create those, again, the human dimension of that, that is the happenstance, the, I bumped into somebody at the coffee machine, we got into a conversation and I've now got this new idea that I wouldn't have had if I didn't do that. So I think there's always going to be a place for people being together in a space. I think you'll see, go back to your earlier point, I think that COVID's 
speeding up a lot of plans people already had for thinking about workspace in a different way. That could mm-hmm. be this dynamic way of working, which is a hybrid of working from home plus working in the office, but will also be the physical space that you work in together will be different. You'll have spaces that are around really deep thought and deep work. You'll have other spaces which are about highly collaborative and they'll be designed for that. They won't be just a, a traditional big cathedral trading floor, which looks impressive, but isn't always right for every type of work that goes alongside that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I also think that there's the only way we've ever generated Carl Jung's synchronicity in the past, right, has been this idea that you, you know, even Google, right, create a, an office space that's got this one circular corridor so everyone bumps into one and each other in the physical world. I personally, you know, have found more synchronicity by we at Human Capital have, you know, six offices around the world. I feel much more connected to the other five offices than I ever had because of us all meeting in a virtual landscape more often, more frequently. I think there's still quite a lot of journey to go on defining how much it really matters for teams to meet online. And is there also an equality in people meeting online as opposed to more exclusionary locations, locales, restaurants, etc.? But I think I think it's ultimately going to be a blend. I think what COVID has done is it kind of accelerated the openness of of senior leadership and this kind of idea of, well, I had to do it, they, yeah. they should too, and, and realizing the benefits. And I think we've got to find that balance because on the flip side, Working from home is great for some people, but for others, it means sitting on the end of their bed, you know, never leaving their room kind of thing. Yeah, and I think I think that's absolutely right. I think there's a couple of interesting points in there. One is that idea of there's actually been a benefit for those, for people who are in the different locations who work together and they listen together and they do things in a different way, like you said. I think it's going to be interesting to see how much that rebounds or retracts once the vast majority are back in the office. I know minorities have been there for a while, but the vast majority will come back in the coming months and then uh, that's going to be interesting. Yeah. So operating model. Okay, so I think we've built up a picture of the sort of the stools of of what's going to change, the the legs of the stool that's going to change. There's some dramatic changes there because if you look at the typical trading house or trading business today, there is a there is a hierarchy. You know, the you've kind of got your top guns that being the book leaders and the traders, you know, who who have traditionally ordered around the sort of the various support staff. And you've got this very single point of accountability for how and where success is generated. I'm talking in generalities here and I'm probably talking historically as well. And that's the individual who, for the most part, gets the reward and the risk of of success or lack of success. And everything was kind of culturally allied along that, right? So you, the trader would organize how the operations and so forth would work for them. Compensation regimes were very much tiered to, to that pinnacle around the trader. If you put together all of what you've just described as the even in it's not a very distant future of commodity trading, it's lots of things had to change to be able to create these cross-disciplinary collaborative teams and figure out, okay, well, how do I reward those groups? And where does the real success, the success is no longer going to rest in one person's decision that is either a, you know, the point of accountability to reward or to sanction, so to speak. Yeah, and I think, I think there's lots of aspects in there. One aspect in there is the idea of hierarchy so i think lots of corporations have grown up and have had like decades if not 100 years of successful history based on operating in certain ways and 
and like traditionally that's included things like hierarchy so one individual is at the top of that triangle top of that tree and what have you i think the idea of flat culture is is interesting and you're starting to see it be explored now a bit more in some of the trading companies and some of the hedges this idea of actually you don't have that hierarchical model you have a more collective model around decision making around uh, the distribution of reward around the distribution of risk all those elements and i think you'll see more of that happening so flat culture is it's much more collegiate for one of our description in terms of how decisions are made but it's not kind of all kumbaya altruistic stuff it it's also the sharing of responsibility and the consequence that comes with that i think that then manifests itself in in reward as well though which is how do you start to share out those things in a broader way than the traditional model of the head of trading who gets a very large number and the junior trader or the junior analyst who gets a very much smaller number against that so i think something around the reward piece as well as the flattening of culture hmm. which does fly in the or is challenged by the speed of decision making often is a one of the key determinators of success probably only will be more so you know if everyone has access to the same data it's all about the algorithms and is kind of the speed of decision the speed of consumption of data then having a group committee to decide what to do doesn't that just slow the process down and i think it's a good point because that wasn't what i meant by the language it's almost exactly in pursuit of what you're describing so right now you could argue because it's a hierarchical model it has speed challenges so if the book leader is the one who who has to prove every every trading strategy choice and the market is moving quickly then how do you devolve that as fast as you can you devolve it through a flatter model not through a hierarchical model so when i say collegiate it's probably the wrong language or it's not about everybody makes every decision it's about you distributing that responsibility in quite a flat way so everybody's really clear about what their decision rights are what their responsibilities are but they're probably bigger than they were in yesterday's model mm. Okay, so I think we—it's fascinating, kind of just thinking of all the challenges that face organisations to, and and the change is coming, right? Because I, we, I think we're going to end up on competition, but someone's doing this right now. These aren't none of—it's fair to say none of what you've suggested or mentioned isn't in some way being done right now. Absolutely, and I think there's maturity curves if you look at it, right? You can see there's lots of companies out there like strategy consultancies, etc., who have these models, but you see maturity curves of of everything I've described out there. You see people who are trading very much in the mode of, for one bit description, like yesterday's model, and you see others who are way ahead of what I'm describing, very much rich into that model. So there's lots of challenges to commodity trading, and there's lots of challenges to this vision that we're building. I just want to zoom in on two, kind of competition, who's actually going to be doing this, and then secondly, really about control mechanisms and compliance and kind of... I don't want to get into kind of Terminator <laughs> territory, but, you know, who's making the decisions. Yeah. But um, first is competition because yeah. existing trading houses are developing at different speeds. Yeah. And that could have a dramatic outcome on kind of the, ta- the competitive landscape in a couple of years, let alone five or ten, right? So I think there's, I think there's a few things going on in the, in the market. So much as I talked a lot about technology and data, I guess the physical manifestation of that is access to information through either assets or through flow. And so you're starting to see, I think you'll continue to see those top players buying assets to be able to access that information in a different way, to be able to increase the scale of what access of information they have and access of flow they have. So that's kind of one. 
what type of assets there are they mean are you just buying access to, to google's data or are you buying physical no, assets physical that assets. are nodal uh, points that yeah yeah capture lots of yeah i mean the physical assets in the supply chain i don't mean i don't mean like technical i don't mean like technology assets because you're still seeing that as being it drives information it drives fundamentals and so that's one profile you're starting to see the other is you start i think you'll start to see people either like pulling out of some of these markets or beginning to consolidate down to core because they'll need to focus on being really good at something it won't be good enough to be average at lots of stuff i don't think in the future you'll have to be really good which is either you're a big player with scale or you're a smaller niche player who focuses on a smaller scope in terms of the breadth of commodities or the geographies or the products or wherever else it might be where does that leave hedge funds and your own people's because obviously right now we have episodes coming up on this there's lots there's an influx of of in, investors into commodities world in anticipation of a super cycle yeah that includes goes into active hedge funds or actively managed funds you know where is their competitive advantage going to be because they're certainly not going to be buying assets out there no and they need to you know essentially trade opportunistically across all the entire commodity suite or the energy slice yeah and i think the first two i described are, are kind of more traditional trading models around the commodity markets so the energy commodity markets more specifically i think you've then got other existing participants who aren't those traditional players so that's where i put hedge funds because they're almost in the sweet spot entirely of what i've described in the last bit of this conversation they tend to be and again a bit cliched but they tend to be focused much more on the technology and the data and the skills and everything else i described and already doing that and they'll continue to do that they'll dip in and out of the markets depending on what the cycles are doing like you said they'll continue to do that they'll continue to be able to move quickly in and out and at scale in and out but if we believe elements of what we've described in this conversation already they have that competitive advantage because that's naturally how they approach existing markets anyway isn't it they're, they're very technology rich they're very skilled at using data to create insight and they're very quick at being able to build those two things into a commercial outcome so i think you'll see more and more of that and then there's a third category which i think will be potentially new competitive if you believe again the premise of technology and data being at the heart of this then you'll start to see new potential competitors coming into the market as well i think and there you're alluding to this idea that if data is the um, fundamental asset and you're buying assets to acquire that data, no one has more data than Amazon as it pertains to movement of physical goods and various services. And likewise, Google in terms of, you know, there's other competitors that could come in and have a significant advantage very quickly in trading commodities. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's like, what's the cliche? There's, there's no such thing as new ideas anymore or new thinking. And lots of what we've described, you could give two kind of overarching bits that are history repeating itself. One is commodity traders, energy traders have always been looking for intelligence. They're just doing it in a different way now. It used to be about relationships and people being being trite about it. It's now about actually data and technology and how can and how you can use that. So that's one arc of the story. But the other arc of the story is then go back to companies like Enron. Enron were asset light and data heavy. Their focus was how do you create insight without owning the underlying asset, like you said. If that's the case, then there are plenty of companies out there right now who are much better than a lot of the commodity traders in technology and data. Can they access it? No, but that's what you said, right? They might, they've got big deep pockets right now and they've got pretty rich bank balances. So it's not outside their means to be able to 
to help that challenge and to be able to resolve that challenge. Point one. Point two is they learn fast. So evidence says, history says the last like 10 years alone, lots of these companies move and adapt very quickly and they learn very quickly. What's the chances of them entering into this space? I think I think there is chance there, right? And lastly, maybe if you think about this other thing that's going on around us, which is people caring much more about product and provenance and what they buy and how they buy it. This whole idea of kind of being able to bundle renewable energy plus my Amazon purchase plus all those things in one way as a consumer is quite attractive. Amazon's of the world, others, because I don't know that it's just them, but others in the world pretty smart are thinking about the consumer opportunity in this space so yeah and they're the ones that have access to our front doors right exactly yeah as we've discovered in lockdown yeah exactly it it strikes me just as you're talking there like you've had this trend and we had javier and jack talking about the book world for sale the last decade the last 15 years was these these trading houses having to physically acquire and operate these assets to get the information that they wanted right and the assets themselves weren't fantastically you know lucrative but the information you got out of it was but it created a whole bunch of headaches you know running those difficult assets and then yeah we had the commodity super cycle or the commodity price collapse and blah blah blah. what it strikes me now is that there's all of these assets might do better all these operating companies might do better to say you know what we're not currently monetizing is my data and i'm going to start auctioning off my data to the highest bidder and you know, this is also another source of revenue for, there's lots of things you can do with that, right? Yeah, massive. I think, again, it's almost become a, a bit like cliched and trite again, isn't it? But data is a commodity, or it should be thought of as a commodity in its own right. Now, as with any good commodity, you need to understand what you do with it. You need to understand how to monetize it internally and externally. You need to know what, what skills and operating model you need to be able to execute that monetization. Lots of companies are thinking about this. I mean, Marco Donan, Mercuria talks about Mercuria as being a data company. Others are in this space. They're maybe not talking about it in that way, but they're in this space or thinking in that space. And I think that's interesting from lots of angles. One is the whole bit of this conversation we've already had, which is around the importance of data and skills and all the rest of it. That's kind of point one that's interesting. Two is something about creating new revenue streams. So if you look long enough, forward enough ahead, we're still going to need hydrocarbons for all the reasons we've described and all the things we use every day and touch every day. But at some point that's tailing off. So how do you start to fill in some of those future revenue drops and the curve droppage in that? I think you need to think about new ways to make money with what you've already got. And I think the data has the date an abstracted view, if not the absolute view of the data that lots of companies have and have in their history, has some value to somebody. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I, and I guess I think as listeners might be recognizing we could we could go on all day about this <laughs> topic. I want to kind of finish up on Skynet. <laughs> but seriously, there, there's a couple of aspects of control here that are challenges to, and I don't think ultimately, if history tells us anything, it's not going to stop it. It's just going to create a lot of bumps along the way. One is, and we've covered it in, a, in previous podcasts, is you're creating a lot of data. All that data is discoverable. You know, compliance becomes a huge issue. And, you know, that comes back actually to distributed ledgers and blockchains. There's a solution there. And I think we've sort of, this means ever tighter control. But the bit I want to dig in with you is about the risk management side. If we're starting to rely so much on data, so much on the sort of the analytics and the algorithms and providing and trading that way, 
we still live in the real world. There's still these events, these outsized events, you know, in an algo-rich trading environment. How does that affect the risk world, the risk landscape that the commodities traders face? I think everything we've described is the opportunity of technology and data. You can flip it into it's a control opportunity if used in the right way. So there's always a question of, okay, everybody's asking for loads of data. So like tax authorities around the world now are asking for underlying transaction data, not your traditional like tax completion, whatever it is, at whatever point in the year you do it as a company or as an individual. Can they use it really to get insight yet? Don't know. But they will do at some point in the future if they can today. I think the same is true for compliance and regulation. You're going to start to see more about it's happening now around the world, but you'll start to see more and more of it, which will be the regulators, the compliance authorities, both internal and external compliance, will be looking for the underlying data, not just the outcome of the activity, if that makes sense, whatever that is, the trade value. It'll be looking for different things in the data in its own right. But that's, but again, a bit like the trading opportunity, it's really hard to do. So it's not like this is going to change in the next week, month, quarter. As much as you're seeing more change in technology and data to to create new monetization opportunities or to trade in a better way or faster way, you're going to see parallel tracks around compliance and risk management and regulation management. So that's point one, I guess. Like point two for me is, is your point on algo. So I think more and more organizations will be getting into algo trading sometimes in a range of different definitions of what that means to them, but they'll be getting more into algo trading. That's quite a different risk management challenge from an internal perspective of understanding the true risk whether that's the first line controls, the internal control models, it's a different skill set probably than we've had for the last X amount of decades to understand the inherent risk in an algo position versus a physical position. And I think that will be another area that isn't as well understood right now, but will increasingly be understood. And people will learn from other markets, equities, FX, or other players like some of the hedge funds we talked about earlier. They're probably richer in these areas already, and that's where you'll start to see a transfer of skills and experience. Well, it's been a, a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed it. I feel like there's a part two, part three, and part four <laughs> attached to this. But um, yeah, really interesting discussion. David, thanks so much for your time and um, look forward to hopefully having you back on in the near future and, and carry on the discussion and dig down some of these uh, other avenues. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.